lots of uh, like angst and like, oh, should I even <laughs> be doing this? Should I even be doing games at all? Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cardboard Herald, my chance to talk with creative gamers and game creators. And returning to the show is friend of the show, Greg Loring Albright. Welcome back, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for the uh, the friend of the show status. I'm, I'm honored. Yeah, I think once you've been on at least two preceding times, then at that point you're honorary sure. friend of the show. Third time's the charm. Yeah, I might as well just turn the tables and you can host it from now on. Oh, man, I'm not ready. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, what you're actually ready for is to talk about Ahoy. And in real time, in in meat space, as far as when we're recording this, we are coming off the heels of Gen Con. And I know you weren't at Gen Con this year, but Ahoy by Leader Games, designed by you, was debuted at Gen Con. There were some copies there. They were showing off the game. Were you paying attention to some of the reactions that were going on? Oh, yeah. My uh, my Twitter followers got tired of seeing me retweeting people seeing, saying nice things about Ahoy. But um, yes, I was, I was uh, sad not to be at Gen Con, although I've actually never been to Gen Con. Um, but uh, I was very glad to see that that leader had gotten some early copies. I know there were some shipping things that were they weren't sure they didn't announce they weren't sure the game was going to be there. And so uh, it was nice to see people getting all excited about this kind of surprise unannounced availability of Ahoy at Gen Con. Were you worried at all? Like when you were paying attention to some of the scuttle, were you like, oh, there might be some like people who are just digging at the game or like, man, I demoed this game. It was terrible. Like, were you worried about stumbling upon any of that stuff or were you just confidently going into the social media? No, you you know, they always say like, don't read the comments, but (laughs) uh, you know, a vote of confidence from the team at Leader Games is pretty good, uh, you know, ego boost. So even if people online don't like it, the fact that, you know, Nick and Cole and Patrick and Patty and the whole team over at Leader Games were like, this is a good enough game for us to put our stamp on. It's like, even if there are haters, it's like, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Well, this game is particularly interesting because it has this this lineage, right? You know, like it, it's a story development to get it to the state that it's at right now, releasing by Leader Games. It didn't even have the same theme. It was going to be self-published. Uh, and it was one of your earlier designs. I mean, you're an experienced designer, developer. I mean, you're, you're a game professor uh, at this point. Uh, and if you go back to the days of Hyperspace Smuggler and you look at that original Kickstarter video and you're like, oh, it's it's a baby Greg there making his pitch for Hyperspace Smuggler. Um, it's weird. It, it's, it's been a while. So, so why don't we kind of just recap like the origins of this game here. So was this your first crowdfunded game when you put it up as Hyperspace Smuggler on Kickstarter? Yeah, it was my, my first attempt to do any crowdfunding. This was like you know, not not very early in Kickstarter, but like it was still a little bit of the Wild West. And um, a friend of mine, Andy Patton, who actually uh, co-designed with Matt Grosso uh, Dead Last, the party game. Um, he and I were, were friends and we're talking about game stuff. And he was like, oh, I just kickstarted a game. It wasn't Dead Last. It was something else. And it was great. And you should do it. And so I was like, OK, cool. And I like had this game concept and. I learned like within the first like two days of the Kickstarter going live, I'm like, you know, everyone's supposed to be excited and the project's going great. And I was just like dreading, like thinking about shipping logistics and talking to printers. And I like knew from, from basically day one that like, I don't want to be a publisher. I don't want to run crowdfunding (laughs) campaigns. What year was this? 
2015? So in board game terms, that's ancient history. You know, that's yeah. like nascent yeah. days of like the crowdfunding boom. I mean, obviously there were some of the like big marquee titles. I think Alien Frontiers is the one that comes yes. to mind for me as like, this is showing a new path for board games. But then we had this this huge boom of crowdfunding and, you know, this this new opportunity for all these new creators, all these new ideas. One thing that struck me about the uh, Kickstarter that you had was that there were a lot of art assets that you were demonstrating in the video that were part of the, the, the Kickstarter itself. And I know that that's kind of part and parcel of the whole crowdfunding gig now. You want to show off as much of the game as possible. But to not fund and have all those art assets and everything, like what, what was that situation Man. by the time you canceled the Kickstarter? It was the most costly mistake I've made. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Anyway, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of money on art, and and that was a lot of fun to do. Um, I, and I had some money. I was running real world games, uh, and so I had a little LLC, and so I was using. You know, I wasn't like bankrupting my family to to buy art. Uh, that would be just a really sad tale. I had like game earmarked money that I was using to prepare for this Kickstarter. But um, yeah, I own the rights to a lot of cool space art that <laughs> I don't do anything with. Actually, that's not true. I did um, I, for uh, this is like kind of a long rabbit rabbit trail, but whatever. Um, Riley Rathal does uh, like role playing games and belonging outside belonging stuff, and did Galactic Two E, which is like basically a Star Wars role playing game without the license. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And then there was a jam for like add ons for that game, and so I did a I did an add on for that game about bringing starships into this like very character driven, very like intimate sort of emotional Star Wars game, and I used some of the art from Hyperspace Smuggler you go. for that game on itch. So nothing ever goes away. It's always it's always in the drawer. You have it in the back That's pocket right. whenever you need it. Yep. So what's the the story from the time that it, it didn't succeed as your initial Kickstarter to the time that you're turning around and pitching this concept to publishers at large and to the leaders specifically? Yeah. Lots of uh like angst and like oh should i even be doing this should i even be doing games at all like this is a disaster i felt so bad when the kickstarter didn't fund but i also felt really good because i didn't want to have to deal with it yeah. um but mostly i felt bad and i like backburnered the game and shelved it um and i kept doing game stuff sort of in that interim window i think was when when you and i met for totally. yep. and my movie dick game so i was still doing game stuff but hyperspace smuggle it was like i put it out of my mind for a while and just like left it in the prototype box on the shelf and resisted the urge to like, you know, cannibalize it for parts or whatever. Um, and it was a very different game then. It was fully symmetric. So everyone was a smuggler and it was just sort of a competition to deliver goods. And it was not even dice action placement. It was card driven. You had a hand of cards with different suits that were like, go, you know, use your engines or fight and use your lasers. And um, so anyway, after a couple of years, I like it's like maybe I'll take a look at Hyperspace Smuggler again. You know, the wound had healed the like <laughs> bad feeling of looking at the Kickstarter page of like five thousand out of thirty thousand dollars. It was like, okay, I can I can get over that. And Which so I might started... I say thirty thousand dollars for a project this ambitious is so small in the scheme of Kickstarters. Yeah, again, I've got I probably was I had way lowballed my goal. I'm pretty glad I didn't <laughs> succeed. Um, although it was a smaller like footprint component wise, then there were not dice. There were not a lot of tokens. It was mostly right. cards, but still, um, it was probably an underestimate. Um, 
but yeah, anyway, so I, I pulled the game down and I started tinkering with it again and just like totally overhauled it. And I actually was looking at some of my old files to prepare for this this chat. And my, the version number that I turned over to Leader Games was version 31. But I restarted my version counting when I did this sort of return. And so there were like, you know, there were like 20 or 30 versions before the Kickstarter. And so it was actually like, it's more like version 50 or 60. Um, so I just kind of kept tinkering with it and kept playing with it. Did you specifically seek out leader games for this or were you pitching the game to a myriad of publishers? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question and a good story. I, um, you know, when I started, when I sort of picked it back up, it was still fully symmetric. It was dice placement. It, it would look a lot more like Ahoy as we see it now. Um, but everyone was a smuggler and, then I had played a two-player game with someone, and there was this sort of component called the Space Pirates that would kind of chase everybody around and make certain areas of the map, like, worse to go to. And in the two-player game, you sort of pass control of that back and forth. And the person I was playtesting with was like, why doesn't somebody just be the Space Pirates? And I was like, oh. Thank God for that person, you know? Yeah, shout out shout out to Ken. He, uh, he moved to New Zealand now, so I don't playtest with him anymore, but... Um, uh, yeah, so that kind of started. And so then I was pitching the game at like unpubs and stuff as a sort of pseudo asymmetric. There was four smugglers and there was this one asymmetric role that, that morphed from being space pirates into being, you know, the evil space empire. Um, and I, I showed that game to John Gilmore, who was doing scouting for Phantasaurus at the time. And uh, he said, you know, if you, if you developed a couple more factions, you could show this to leader. This was right when root was popping off and mm -hmm, they were like, mm -hmm. you know, this was like, this is the start of their sort of meteoric rise. And he was like, I bet they'd look at it. And so I was like, okay, cool. And that was like my development brief for like the next year and a half. And then I did show it to leader and they liked it. <laughs> so at the time that you showed it to leader, it was still the space theme. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's, okay. it's been, so my first sort of like early, early, early drafts of this game, it was a pirate game. And I played it with my friend Wes and he said, you need hyperspace to make it easier to get around the map. And so like after like playtest number like four or five, I turned it into a space game and it stayed a space game until I gave the prototype to Cole. And he was like, we're probably not going to keep the space theme. They were already working on arcs. He said, if you're cool with that, I'll look at this prototype. I was like, great. Yeah, they have a couple space themes in the bag. I mean, they they have already announced in our working <laughs> arcs and then they have Void Lich, which is something that you know who knows when that might come out and then yeah. for a while they had deep that they were announcing and you know talking about as another space game so they they've been in the space realm so i'm not surprised that they wanted to transition to some different theme but it's cool that it originally started as like a, a pirate thing i think i was reading it in the initial design doc for this or or you know the design diary that you post on bgg that there was some inspiration for merchants and marauders yes totally totally when i was actually the game i mentioned in that design diary that i played merchants and marauders exactly one time and it just like <laughs> took up residence in my head i was like this game is so cool i want to make this game um, but it was too much. Like it's a big game with a lot of pieces and the player aid is a two sided eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And I was like, ah, like trim the fat, get this game down to like something that I can like my goal, my sort of goal for a lot of my game projects is like, can I play this with my dad who like loves games? He taught me to play hearts. He taught me to be mean in monopoly. Um, <laughs> but like doesn't have a lot of patience for a lot of like modern hobby games. And so I was like, okay. If, if my dad can have a good time playing this, that's like the brief. Um, and so uh, 
so that was what I did. I started saying like, how can I make merchants and marauders in like an hour with a low rules overhead? And uh, the the person actually whose copy of Merchants and Marauders I played was Mac Rosso, who's the other designer of Dead Last. So this sort of Chicago, we were all living in Chicago at that point. I think we've all left Chicago now. That whole scene was like very important to the beginnings of what became Ahoy. Did you grow up in Chicago? I know you as a Philly guy. Yeah, I'm I'm Pennsylvania, Philly for life. Um, but uh, I don't live in Philly right now, but I still love it. But uh, my partner got, did a, a graduate degree in Chicago, so we moved out there for a while. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, you know, I, I'm so glad that there's this hubris among it, early game designers, right? You know, like, uh, it, it's something that's really endearing to me that people get into this hobby uh, and there's such an influx uh, of people and not necessarily saying that you were this person, but they play a handful of games and they're like, oh, these are cool. And then they play a couple more complex games and they think, well, surely these 10 games that I've played are the only games that have ever existed. So I'm going to design the 11th game. I'm going to design the better game. And so with one play of Merchant Marauders or whatever it is, so many people out there go, I could design something better. And eventually that kind of evolves. You set that project aside, but the, the itch to still create is there and it's persistent as you play more and more and more games. But I think that's really a lot of the trajectory with with so many people who become game designers like i i know many other industries and many other creative art forms where people you know they want to learn the art form but they don't really imagine themselves as someone publishing something after reading five books or something but like something about games people play a couple games and they go I know what I want to do. I want to make these things right here. It's so cool. Yeah. It's, it's a like, unique experience. And yeah, I, I think a lot about this because I'm like starting to teach about games and I've been writing and thinking about games. The sort of tactile availability of the pieces, I think, is a big part of that allure, at least for me, that it's like, well, it's just some like, you know, like I can print something on my printer and I can get some dice and a pawn and I can do it. Whereas like, you know, a video game is like, I don't know how to make art assets. I don't know how to use Unity. Like the the just tactile availability of like I have to process all this stuff in my head to play this game. But once I do that, it's all just available for me, and I can think of other ways to do it. And I can even write house rules that let me do it differently. And I feel like once you think of a house rule, like suddenly you're on the slope to becoming a game right, designer. Right. So you're talking to John Gilmore at Unpub or whatever. Uh, he talks to you about if you make this just a little more asymmetric, this might be a leader game. You go through the iteration process, and then you're making your pitch, and the pitch is actually to Cole? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I sent an email in the run-up to PAX Unplugged 19? Yeah, I think 2019. Um, I was like, you know, I had a couple other games, but my this Hyperspace Smuggler was my big title I was trying to get and uh, we were expecting our first kid at that point and I was like look I'm not gonna have a ton of time to design games I gotta land a game at PAX where I'm gonna have to like go dormant for a while um, and so I emailed the info at leader and I had a, a pitch I had a sell sheet done up that was like pitching this as a vast game because I had played vast the crystal caverns um, and and this the Ahoy whatever hyperspace Mugler wasn't really a vast game but I was like let me like pitch it in a way that will like get their attention um, and so I sent that and like within a day, Patrick Leader replied and was like, yeah, here's Cole's email, set up a meeting with him, which is wild because 
at, at that point, I think they were, they like had an open info at and they were like, sure, pitch us stuff. Now they're such a big name that they're like, close that off a little bit. But I just felt so lucky that A, the info at was being checked by Patrick Leader, which is like, you know, usually the intern checks the info at or whatever. Um, and then B, that I got to pitch it to Cole because, you know, he's sort of the creative head of studio and, and he immediately like, as we were playing the game, I saw his wheels start to turn. I was like, yes, I've got him. He was like, oh, you could do this. You could do that. I was like, yep, you definitely could. For so few games under his belt, Cole has developed this kind of infamous status as like a, a scholar of a game designer, which is actually kind of a group that I lump you in, probably because of your scholarship studies in uh, in game design and just all the, the scope of the way that we play games that you've focused on and presented on over the years. Uh, and you're very thoughtful about the the process of creating games. And I've gotten a chance to talk to you and Cole both about those types of things. Was it intimidating at all for you? Like, was it different giving the pitch to leader games or Cole specifically than pitching to other companies, especially because you kind of tooled the game to make this specific pitch to them. Yeah, that was that was definitely the intimidating part, more so than like, you know, Cole himself, the great designer. <laughs> like I had I had actually gotten to chat with him. I had pitched an earlier iteration of Hyperspace Smuggler at PAX twenty eighteen to Marshall, who was one of the founders of the Yanaguana games, mm -hmm. I think that's how you say it. And then he ended up working in ops for Leader. And so he had seen the game. I had done a pitch meeting with him. And then Leader hired him, and then he was like, oh, you know, I've seen this game before, it's cool, it's been developed more. And anyway, during that meeting with Marshall, Cole was hanging out, and I got to chat with him about some academic stuff, because he's written an article or two for the Analog Game Studies Journal that I've also written for, and so I like wanted to pick his brain about that. So anyway, this pitch was not like my first time meeting Cole, and I wasn't like super nervous about that, although I was definitely nervous of like, yeah, like I've sort of tuned this game for this pitch meeting, and these are like you know, the 30 to 45 minutes that I have to like see if this work is going to pay off. And they sign it. They say, yeah, we're probably going to end up ditching this theme, but we're going to take this game on, see what we can do with it. And then the in-house development happens from there. And this is a process that I'm particularly curious about because you're the designer. Uh, Cole is the head of the, the games or creative aspect of leader games. And then Nick Brockman... Uh, had recently been appointed to be the head of game development at Leader Games. How much were you involved, if at all, in the development of the game once it was turned over to them? Yeah, um, almost, I mean, I'm going to say it in whatever, almost not at all. And that sounds like a bad thing, but it was actually great. Um, you know, I turned over this, what to me was essentially a finished product to them. And then... Uh, they worked on it and they worked on it and occasionally I would get an email from Nick or from Cole being like, hey, we're going to change this, take a look. And, oh, you know, the, when, when I first had it to them and they got back from PAX and they were starting to think about signing it, Nick sent me this long email of like a couple rules clarifications and like a bunch of questions about like, okay, so why did this rule do that? And why does this rule do that? And you could tell he was just like, like disassembling the whole game in his mind and getting ready to put it back together. Um, but from that point on, it was mostly just, you know, they were, they were prepping rules and they would send me drafts and like Patrick would like, you know, sneak me photos of play tests on, in my Twitter DMS occasionally. And he would, I would get a message from Patrick and be like, don't show anyone. <laughs> and then he would send me a picture of a, a play test in progress. Like, yes, it looks so good. 
Um, so yeah, it was it was very hands off for me. I, I definitely like was available. You know, I wasn't like frozen out. I gave a couple feedbacks on a couple terms, and they were like, "Yes, absolutely, we love it. We'll change it." Um, but it wasn't like you know, I wasn't in like a development meeting every week. Um, thank goodness, because I was finishing my PhD and would not have had time. So the the game has evolved considerably since the time that you pitched it to them. Do you like? In looking at the final rules, are there things to you where you're like, that was so obvious. Why didn't I think of that? Yeah, the most, I mean, the most sort of genius things that I think changed are, well, well, three things I'll flag. And I'll probably think of more as I'm talking because Nick did change a ton of stuff. Um, number one is removing one of the tiles. So there's 12 tiles in the set and you take out one at the start. And that prevents you from, you know, getting this kind of like frustrated, like, I'm going to find the last tile, which is something that happened in my playtests, and I was just kind of okay with it. But the game is better with that sort of randomness of, I don't know if that other blue island is out there. Um, and so so that's one. Uh, two, and these two are both changes to the smugglers, actually, and Nick talked about them in his design diary, um, adding the rewards grid. So when the smugglers deliver cargo, they don't just get points. They can also choose from this sort of grid of options. And that's really smart because it prevents people from just sort of predicting what the smugglers are going to do points-wise. Like, well, I see they have two cards. They get three points per card. I'm guessing they're going to get six points. They can go on this rewards grid, and it makes them a little more squirrely, a little more unpredictable. And then the other thing with the smugglers is the pledging system, where once they have this sort of like, it's almost like a stocks game, where when they deliver cargo, they have to say, I bet the bluefins are going to control a skull island at the end of the game, so I'll put this skull card under the bluefin token. That was not in the original game. There was just sort of uh, the smugglers just scored at the end, and so uh, this kind of adds more unpredictability and gives them a little more skin in the area control game. Whereas before, they were kind of apathetic about that. Can you speak at all to the fact that the smugglers are identical? Because right now it's a four-player game. If you're playing with two players, you have to play as the Mollusk Union and the Bluefins. And then if you have a third or fourth player, they're smugglers. And a big part of the shtick with leader games and with this game in particular is the asymmetric factions. You know, my thing does something entirely different than your thing. But then if you're playing with four players, two people are doing the exact same thing. You know, they, they can make different choices in the game, but there's no asymmetry between the two of them. Was that something where it just wasn't working as far as play testing and breaking up, breaking them out to, to be different things? Or is it like a, a legacy holdover from the days in which it was a symmetric pick-up-and-deliver game? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of both. I do think when I pitched the, the kit that I gave Cole, had enough components to play the game as you have a hoy now with the two area control factions and up to two smugglers but it also had two more sets of smuggler pieces so you could play fully symmetric there were enough pieces for four smugglers to just go and kind of play a pick up and deliver game um and and i think leader made a good choice to cut that out to get the price point down and to prevent people from doing the the oath thing right oath has one too many sets of player components because you want your color to become the chancellor right. but then it's like you could play it with six players which like i can't imagine it would take forever um so you don't want to be able to play six player ahoy because that would be bonkers um without some tweaks or something so that's one and then two i think because this is sort of like a like an entry level asymmetric game having two people doing the same thing excuse me is good because you can give those two roles 
to your newer players or to your teaching player and the newer player. And they can just sort of, you know, watch each other and map onto each other and say, okay, I might not totally understand what the, the Mollus Union is up to with their comrades. That's like one of the more opaque systems to someone who's never played before. But I see what this smuggler is doing and I can try and do something similar. So um, there was, you know, there was also in the, in the box that I, that I handed off, there was a fifth faction, but it was too dependent on combat. Um, it, if, if nobody fought, then, which is totally a viable way to play a Hoy. Lots of people play it sort of Cold War style and just kind of fend each other off and there's tension and it's fun. But um, this faction relied on people fighting. And if nobody fought, they were like destined to lose the game. So I think it was good that they wrote that one out. It's interesting that you mentioned the Cold War style because in my experience of playing the game, that was one of the things that was harder to to learn about like finding the fun in the game, if that makes sense. It, it's that when we first sat down playing it two players having never played it before no one's ever demoed it for us uh, i'd read the rules i've gone over all the rules with the other player we very much approached it as an area control game where we were in this tight battle over making these single islands are like our master control islands as valuable as possible and that kind of made the game exhausting to a degree uh like we burnt out the the entire follower deck or you know the the crew deck you know right. i yeah, i absolutely. as the mollusk union ended up having all the cards in my hand you know i'd played a few but you know i'd gone through the deck and then we went a couple more rounds and we realized we weren't really playing the game on its own terms, if that makes sense. You know, we were playing it like a game where it was that stiff level of control. Had we been more aggressive in exploring and being more okay with losing islands and just accepting there's no way that anyone can control everything. So if I just explore and continue this momentum in different directions and not load up one island so it's so precious that I have to control it then the game is so much more uh, fun and aggressive and fast and interesting. Um, and I'm wondering if that sort of like ambiguity to approaches in the game was was part of the intent and part of the design. Like neither of us walked away from that first game feeling like we didn't like the game, but we did think like, I wonder if we're not playing this the way the game wants us to play. And it, it clicked as soon as we started approaching it differently. Yeah, that's definitely something that, you know, two player players have to learn mm -hmm. and figure out, um, you know, because the game is designed sort of as this asymmetric ecosystem. It's like, yeah, the smuggler's function is to increase those wealth dice, which just kind of happens automatically in the two player game. But their other big function is to go find new islands because they're the ones who want to go and say, well, there's no red and I want to deliver this cargo to red. Um, and so, yeah, in a two player game, that is sort of the one thing that's missing. And I say missing like, you know, it's not uh, it's not totally absent from the game, but it's like, yeah, you as two players have to figure out, OK, well, there's no smuggler to do this for me. So when do I cut my losses at this island? When do I say I can spend a die to send my flagship or one of my patrols off the board? and get a free point for this round at least, and then figure out what to do with that island that I find next round. And the smuggler can really book it when it comes to points. Like, if if yes. you were doing that sort of Cold War style between the Bluefins and the Mollusk, and the smuggler is just having their day, 
there's no stopping them. They they can accelerate like crazy. So I, I think that is kind of that organic push in the three and four player game. And the two player game, you know, like one of the things that I said in my review about the game is I think it is an excellent two player game. It's just learning to find, you know, that, that right approach for it. Um, one thing that I know about you as a, a person, as a designer, especially talking to you about like block by block, is that there there's this... Um, maybe not need, but at least an interest to put in like this anti-authoritarian, anti-fascist element uh, to your games. And that's definitely there with the Mollusk Union and the comrades that you're putting out. There's a sort of revolutionary bent to it. Was that there from the nascent stages or is that something that came through the switch and theme? Yeah, no, totally. The When I was sort of, you know, after John's feedback, John Gilmore's feedback of like, get more roles and it was a space game <clears throat> and it was sort of like i mean it was almost the pitch was almost like uh, outer rim but then you know one player took on the role of the empire and i was like well i need more roles and i was like well obviously there's an empire there has to be the rebellion and so that's the group that became the mollusk union um and so you know they already have this sort of like underground resistance fighter kind of vibe and the the comrade name is just so good <laughs> nick is the one who put that in there and you know, before in the in the pitched version, the the revolution was putting out little cubes onto the planets, which are now islands, and that was like representing like feelings of like they were stirring up sentiment. Um, and so it's nice now that they're comrades because you get to say comrade, which is like a very politically loaded yeah, word. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and it's also nice because then they're like people. It's not like well, I'm using good feeling to produce mm -hmm. the cutter or the gunboat. It's like no, these people are going to take a boat. And put the mighty claw on it and go sail it away that's awesome so where does it go from here i mean obviously people have played root they love the idea of there are more factions you know there are expansions that come that add that iterate that change that evolve and you are the designer but you're not part of leader games i hope uh, I, and I expect to a degree because we live in 2022 where board games are like ongoing platforms, almost like services, that there will be more content down the road. I hope that there is room for more content for Ahoy. But what does that look like with you as the Ahoy designer and Leader Games as the studio? They have their own designers internally. Has there been any sort of discussion, at least as to like what that relationship might be for potential expansions? That's a great question. There has not been any official talk about expansions yet, but I'm almost like more excited about as you know a sort of anti-authoritarian with like a background in fan studies is this thing that happens in Root, which is fan factions. Um, I'm like stoked. I'm like just like refreshing the BGG page <laughs> now that people have the game home from Gen Con to see like. Who's going to be the first person to come up with a fan faction? That would just, I would feel so like blown away and honored for somebody to like grok this system that sort of I built with Nick and, and then like take it and make it their own creatively. Like, so, you know, I, I, I would love that. That would be super cool. And it would also fit in this sort of like, right, this like punk DIY zine culture of like if somebody puts a fan faction online, you can just print it out and then you've got an expansion and you don't need to wait for, for, Patrick to say something on Twitter about now we're making an Ahoy expansion. But that official endorsement or at least acknowledgement on the part of the designer or the publisher to be like, hey, you should check out this fan faction. That means a lot both to the community. It adds legitimacy, but also uh, I think it means a lot to the layman, the person at home that it's been vetted or at least, you know, like this is 
up to snuff or within the the scope and i know you know that kind of zine culture that diy who cares what the original publisher said you know death of the author let's just move on to what we are as the consumers as the people who are playing the game what we think it should be at this point which you know more power to those people but um you know i i personally love to see when these fan projects reach a level of legitimacy either through that acknowledgement which I've seen, or in some rare cases, using that as the basis for actual content that's come out. I mean, you look at a Caverna expansion uh, that started as a, a fan uh, post on BGG of like, could we do asymmetric factions for Caverna? And then that was officially oh, adopted and published as the one and only Caverna expansion that's out there. You know, like that's, that's so, cool. so cool. And then you also have stuff like um, uh, Jamie Stegmeyer has done that, or Stonemeyer Games has done that for Scythe. I want to say the the Rise of Fenris started as like a, a fan campaign and then kind of evolved out of that. Uh, and you know the the room for that to be adopted officially or at least acknowledged is so cool absolutely absolutely so when's your fan expansion going to come out you know the one that you're not going publish but you're going to be like hey i posted this under my burner account (laughs) (laughs) yeah watch uh watch for for anonymous new bgg accounts to drop ahoy content it might be i might be scheming there you go well What's on the horizon for you, independent of Ahoy? Like, what can we expect in the games world from Greg Loring Albright? Yeah, I sort of, I've sort of cleared my pipeline a little bit, which feels good and also scary. Um, but I just, I just defended my dissertation and I just started a new job, and so I was kind of like focusing on that, you know, letting Ahoy percolate up, finishing up with block by block, and and getting that off my table, and then. Um, now I'm. I just bought tickets to to PAX Unplugged. Knock on wood. Coronavirus stays in check, and we can all go. Um, but but I have I have some stuff I want to pitch to publishers that I'm hopefully going to have a little bit of time to develop this fall. Um, I don't. I'm not going to. Well, I'll talk about the one because I've talked about it on Twitter <laughs> before. It's like a role playing sort of light storytelling game about a religion and the sort of tensions of to like. Of course it is make it fall apart or stay together and sort of like how you betray your founder's vision or how you try and hold true despite people trying to to tear it apart. Um, So I've been playtesting that uh, specifically with friends and family of mine who are uh, a little more religious than I am. And that's been a lot of fun to like really get their like inside input on. Um, Yeah. So if you, uh, if you're at PAX and see me, I'll probably have a copy of that to, to demo or pitch. Well, I definitely want to see it and I want to play it and I want to cover it because, you know, I like, you know, focusing on, you know, non-sensitive, non-controversial topics. Uh, so, you know, like that seems like a safe and, you know, a, a game that no one's going to get their hackles up over. I mean, I've been on your show for a game about politics. <laughs> maybe we'll get religion and then maybe we'll get sex. Who knows? We'll just hit the big yeah, we'll, we'll just handle it. Well, as <laughs> always, it has been such a joy to have you on the show, Greg. Ahoy is a fantastic game. I love it at two players. Uh, I love it even more at higher player counts, but I, I truly think as far as leaders of asymmetric games, this is the first time in which a two-player game feels content and robust and exciting, and it's just even better 
at a higher player count. So congratulations on getting to the final, the the finishing line with that. And uh, I can't wait to talk to you more about games and see you at PAX Unplugged as long as uh, things run smoothly in this new and uh, terrifying world we live in. Yeah, right. I will. I know we're signing off. I will drop a quick two-player anecdote. When I was pitching it to call, I was sort of running through the player count and I was like, well, there's two of us, but let's like each run two factions and play test it at four. And he was like, is two player bad? Is that why you're doing I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> he wasn't that, that director that mean about it, but immediately I could see him being like, is this not going to be good at two? Um, but it's as, as you've attested to, and as people have seen, it's, it's pretty good at two if I do say so myself. Um, so yeah, thanks so much for having me on. And uh, I love, I love talking about Ahoy. I love seeing all the pictures come in and it's, it's so good to finally see it out there in the world.